0: I feel a lot of pressure to get through quickly because I know the fathers, uh, the dads don't cook. They take the moms out to eat. And so in order to beat other people to the restaurants, we got to get out of here quickly. But Father's Day, I know moms cook and, and really, so there's really no rush. So we're going to take our sweet old time this morning. <laughs> just as a gift to you fathers so that that food, you'll have such longing for it that it'll taste extra good by the time you get to it at 1.30 this afternoon. No, no. Um, <laughs> Let's get to God's Word. We've got good things to hear, but you have gifts awaiting you from your children as well. John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. As we conclude our series looking at the meals of Jesus, we've been looking at how Jesus teaches and what he reveals about himself around the context of meals. We began it with Andy talking about how Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners. And we see a similar theme of sorts today as we conclude this time looking at this theme in the Gospels. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It sends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Verse 11, some key words there as to what's going on in this passage. Sometimes the answer comes in the back of the book, right? This is the first of his signs. The first of his signs. They say uh, the first impression is the last impression. That it cuts the deepest. This sign, as the first sign, is actually telling us something very important. It's telling us something about the end from the very beginning. That Jesus is very, very purposeful here. Do you think this was purposeful? You think Jesus did this? You think he just kind of randomly decided one day to start turning water into wine as his first sign? This was Jesus' first public miracle, his entrance onto the stage, so to speak, the announcement of his arrival. Do you think he gave some thought as to what he would do and how he would do it in order to announce his arrival, to reveal himself to the public in a miraculous way? Let me put it this way let's go from the lesser to the greater. In my early 20s, I did what early 20-year-olds do. I asked females out on dates. That's really funny to this row. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> and, and, and going on a first date was a matter of great preparation. Like, for me, I would you know, do laundry a few days in advance to ensure that the, the correct set of clothing was ready to go on the appropriate day i also i would shave 2 days before the day why you say 2 days that's very odd well here's the reason i had a severe baby face and so two things would happen. One, if I shaved too, too quickly, I would look too much like a baby, but then also I would have razor burn on my face. And so I needed two days to give me some semblance of ruggedness without being too ridiculous looking. Because my hair at that time would come out rather thin and patchy. So this gave me just the slightest bit of non-baby-facedness. And then I would always go and work out the day of, of the date because that makes you feel manly. Burn off some testosterone before the date. Now, here's the question. Now, if I put that much thought into a first date, here is Jesus on the greatest missions movement of the world, Jesus who's coming to reveal himself as the Savior of all creation, Jesus who is going to launch the greatest movement the world has ever known. How much thought do you think Jesus put into this? Do you think this was an accident? By no means. My point is this. This was a planned and purposeful miracle meant to announce and to say something about him and to communicate, to make a statement about why he has come and who he is. In fact, what I would say is this, is Jesus is seeking to make a first impression and actually reveal himself. The end from the beginning is revealed here. And what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus at this wedding meal is revealing, revealing himself, revealing as it says there, he manifests his glory. How awesome he is. So what does Jesus reveal about himself? How does Jesus' glory seen here in this miracle? Three points for you. Because that's the way we do it. Jesus is revealing his glory First and foremost, by saving the inadequate. He reveals why he came. He came to seek and to save the people who have it all together. The people who are found. He came to seek and save the healthy. No, he came to seek and save. The lost. What, here's the context of what is going on here. Jesus has spent the previous couple days here in the early parts of his ministry in the Gospel of John, the previous couple days, simply calling his disciples to him. And now he's taken some of his disciples who he has now called to follow him, and they are found at a wedding. And most likely this is a wedding of a family member. This is why Mary seems to take a particular um, extra sense of responsibility over what is going on at the wedding party and the fact that there's, they've run out of wine. Now, wh- Well, you know that weddings, weddings are enormous affairs today, but they are nothing compared to an ancient Near Eastern wedding. Weddings back then were seven-day-long events, seven days of feasting and drinking and dancing. Often, family members would come from all over the surrounding region. Very often, the entire city or village would be invited. Everything would shut down in the whole city so that everybody could celebrate this wedding. And unlike today, where it is the bride's family, it is the custom. How do these things get figured out? I have no idea. I have two children two men. Males and two females, so it doesn't matter to me. But I don't understand. But brides now, brides families now seem to be responsible to pay for the wedding. But back then, it was the responsibility of the groom to pay for his wedding. But notice that this is not where the gospel writer draws our attention. He doesn't draw our attention to how great and grand and lavish and how long and extended and how what a great party this wedding is. Instead, he draws our attention to this one fact about this wedding that the wine ran out. Disaster has struck, and this is indeed a disaster. The open bar has shut down. You can't have a good party without the wine. I mean, the whole key to the festivity was what? How did you get people to to party for seven days? You had to have wine. Or else what happens? People begin to fight. People stop dancing. The music stops playing. You need to understand, though, As funny as that is, you have to understand this. This is no minor social faux pas. This actually would have been seen as a shameful disaster. This is no minor catering blunder where the the lobster puffs did not come out correctly. This is a terrible event. This is of much greater significance. It would have been actually a matter of great shame upon the groom and upon his family. It would have indicated this that the groom lacked the resources to actually provide for his bride. You see, when brides and grooms were betrothed, the groom would go to the bride's father and tell him, I have the resources to provide for your daughter. And one of the ways in which you display the, the, your wealth and the resources that you have is by throwing a lavish party to show I can provide for your child. And this actually meant this. If the wine ran out... If food ran out, it actually meant this. It meant the wedding was off. It meant the father of the bride could say, you have lied to us about your ability to take care of our daughter. Therefore, we're taking her and we're going home. Wedding off. This guy would have been known forever as the guy who ran out of wine at his own wedding. It's like kind of like being late for your own funeral. This was a matter of legal liability and would have ended in divorce or an annulment of the marriage. So I ask you, who does Jesus come to save? He comes to save inadequate men who are found wanting in their ability to care for their spouses and for their children. You ask a man the thing he most fears about himself, he would say this, I fear I don't have what it takes. And who does Jesus come to save? A groom who doesn't have what it takes. He doesn't have the financial resources. He doesn't have the network of friends. He doesn't have the connections in order to pull this wedding off without shameful and disastrous results. Jesus comes to save the inadequate, the shamed, the failures, the screw-ups, the people who don't have enough. In the most vital and memorable moment in the life of this family and this groom, he has fallen short. But it's this man that Jesus comes to save. You see, Jesus comes to save a party and save the lives of those who have found themselves wanting and have found themselves in a life in which they look around and they go, this life, the wine has run dry. It does not satisfy me. That I have found myself in all the things of this world to be inadequate, to satisfy me and to give me joy. You see, I think it may... Best be put the understanding of this text from the famous line by Jack Sparrow and appropriate it to us. In this life, we will always be asking this question why is the wine always gone? (laughs) You see, in the scriptures, wine is connected to the good life. Wherever the Bible talks about wine, it's connected to the good life, to joy, to abundance. But in this life, the wine is, it's never enough. There's never enough of the things in this world that would satisfy our souls and give us joy and hope and celebration. What we think will satisfy us, what we think will make us adequate, what we think will fulfill our souls, it always runs dry. Sex, it's not enough. You're going to get old and have to take Cialis. Marriage is going to disappoint you. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. And frankly, you're going to realize that you're a disappointment as a spouse. Approval, eventually, in order to get the approval of other people, you realize you're going to have to tick off other people in your life. There's no winning for you. In work, in work, they take the best years of your life and they dump you off with a piddly pension at the end of it all. We have a joy shortage. We have a wine shortage in life. You see, we are joyous because we have found ourselves in all of life to be inadequate to satisfy our souls. But who does Jesus come to save? He comes to seek and save the lost. He comes to restore inadequate men and women to save the inadequate and to provide for them. And so all other wine runs out, but not with Jesus, we see not with Jesus. Jesus makes that clear with this sign. You see, the author is going to give us, not the John is going to give us a couple tidbits from this miraculous event that show us something. You see, Jesus doesn't simply reveal his glory in who he comes to say, but he also reveals his glory and the magnificence in the extravagance of his provision. This is the second thing I want you to see this morning. That Jesus manifests and reveals his glory by providing with extravagance. A couple things stick out of the depiction of the wine that Jesus makes here. First is this. One is simply the sheer amount of it. Look at verse 6. It says this. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I've done some math this week. I got on the Google machine. We did some conversions. Let Let me just walk some of this, how much this was. One gallon equals five. You look at it, go to the store and buy a bottle of wine. You get five bottles of wine in one gallon. So one gallon equals five bottles of wine. There are up to 30 gallons in each of these jars, and there's six jars. What I'm saying is this. is This is a little bit more wine than you need simply for a small little champagne toast around the cake. If you actually run out the math, it's 750 bottles of wine that Jesus has created. I went a little bit further. If you're a beer drinker and you don't like wine, this is 10 kegs. And if you're a bourbon drinker and you like to drink Handles, well, never mind. We'll leave it at that. (laughs) But notice the equality. It's not just the sheer amount. It is unbelievable. In fact, some commentators are offended. They say that no way, John is speaking in hyperbole here. But we get descriptions that they filled it up to the very brim. 750 bottles of wine. But notice also the quality of the wine as well. The master of the feast, they take the wine to him and he goes, wait a second. Why did we start with the two-buck chuck? Now we have the good stuff. What in the world? He is amazed at how good the wine is. This wine is better than I ever thought possible. This wine is better than anyone was expecting. It is better. This is no Natty Light and this is no two-buck chuck. This is something incredible. When wine is in the Bible, an expression of the good life, and therefore, what is Jesus saying in this miracle? I've come to give you the good life, and I've come to give you the good life in abundance. In fact, actually, John talks about this, and Jesus cites this later on. In John 10.10, 10, it says this. Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and life abundant. Kids, let me put it in language that you can understand. This is a never-ending flow of pizza and ice cream and root beer and lucky charms. And for me, it would be Frosted Flakes. (laughs) The good life is to have cold milk and Frosted Flakes. Or for some of you, maybe it's a cold beer. But Jesus says, that's actually not what I'm talking about. And that's simply a symbol to something much greater. That I have come to give you the life, a life in life abundance. I am the one you find the good life in. He says it over and over again in the book of John. He says in John six thirty five, He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is saying that in me is life, and I provide you not two-bug-chuck sort of life, not a Wednesday night and we're glad it's hump day sort of wine. No, we're giving you the life that is abundant and glorious and beautiful. That's the kind of life you have in me. Jesus comes to turn water into wine, and he comes to turn life, a life, a party that has come to a screeching halt, and he makes it a party again. The music is pumping again, and here's where I want to challenge your thinking, because some of you view Jesus as this, that Jesus is simply here to squash all your happiness. That He is all about no, and no, and no, and you sacrifice, and it's all grit and grind kind of religion, and it pays off to the end, and that you get to go and sing in a huge choir in heaven for all of eternity. But that's not actually the vision of the Christian life, is it? It's the life, and the life abundant. Jesus says, I have come, Yes so that you may learn self-denial and sacrifice and humility and service and obedience. But in these things, I have also come to restore your joy. And not just that, not just joy in this world, but in the joy in the world to come. See, all the places where we, we, some of the places where we see in the Old and the New Testament where wine is talked about, it is visions of heaven Listen to some of these descriptions just from the Old Testament alone. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, it says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples and the veil that is spread over the nations, and he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from their faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth. Jeremiah 31, 11 through 13 says this, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him, for his hands are from hands too strong for him. And they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry, and I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. In Amos 9, 13 through 14, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine. What do you think heaven's going to be like? We read it earlier in our our liturgy. It's going to be a wedding feast where wine will flow. What does Psalm 23 say? My cup overfloweth. That is not water. That is wine it's talking about. The description Revelation 19 describes a wedding feast where we will eat and drink and dance and we'll tell stories. One of the greatest pictures to me of a wedding is this. One of of my sisters got married soon after we had had Lila. Lila was about two years old at the wedding. And Lila, the whole time at the wedding, we 're drinking and eating and we 're having a great time, and Lila loves to be on the dance floor, right? Like kids go to a wedding, and they get in the center of the dance floor, and they want to be the center of attention. And Lila just ran around the dance floor for an hour and a half. Man, can you picture a wedding in your mind, the best wedding you 've ever been to? where your friends, where you 're dancing with people from church? We 're better dancers there to help pick up the picture. And we're drinking. And, 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 and those who are aged are, are kicking it. I mean, they are, like, they're shaking a leg, and you're going, I never I knew how good, good dancers they were. And they said, I took, we took dance lessons in our 70s. Man, it's awesome. And it's, you know what? And guess what? And it goes on forever. And we're going to tell stories at this wedding feast as we drink, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna laugh so hard, or tears are just going to flow out of our eyes. That's the kind of place that we're going. This is the hope to which God is calling us to, the abundant life in Jesus, where we're going to sit at his feet. We're going to enjoy him for all of eternity. Let me ask you this. What would you pay for an experience like that? What would you pay to have the abundant life, to have the wine of an abundant life? You know, Francis Ford Coppola, he was a movie maker, but he was also a winemaker. He tells the story of keeping a $25,000 bottle of wine on top of his fridge. <laughs> he was asked, did it taste good? A couple years ago, at the Napa Valley Wine Auction, a single bottle of wine was sold for over $500,000. That's pretty costly. What would you pay to have the abundant life? To be with God the Father for all of eternity, to be dancing and drinking and eating in the in the presence of God, what would you pay? Well, let me ask you this. How do you get the abundant life? How do we get it? How does the inadequate groom, how does this party get the abundant life? This is the last thing I want you to see this morning, but this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Jesus manifests or reveals his glory in this miracle by bearing the cost there is an odd but it, interaction, but it is the key interaction to understanding this whole story, and it's the interaction between Mary and Jesus. Mary comes to Jesus with the problem... She says, Jesus, there's no more wine. That's all she says. Now, it's obvious by Jesus' a- a- a response that he, she expects him to do something about it. She was not just giving Jesus a source of information. It wasn't that Mary was a lush and showing up and she was going, oh, no, there's no more wine for me. No, she was expecting Jesus to do something about this problem. And Jesus responds in a very odd way. Do you see how he responds? Almost disrespectfully, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. Jesus appears to be almost upset. What is he saying? What does this have to do with me? He's saying, that's the groom's responsibility. In other words, this isn't my wedding. So why are you looking to me to provide the wine? And then he says, my hour has not come. I don't need to buy wedding for this wine, for this particular wedding. What's going on? What is Jesus saying here? Well, here's what most scholars think is going on in Jesus's mind. That Jesus is thinking about what everybody thinks about at a wedding, their own wedding. He's thinking about his own wedding. If you're single at a wedding, you're thinking, I wonder what my wedding might be like. If you're married at at a wedding, then you're thinking about past the wedding you've had, what you might do differently. And like most guys at a wedding, Jesus is thinking about the cost. The cost of the wedding. See, Jesus is thinking about his own wedding, but Jesus, you might say, well, I, wait, I thought Jesus didn't get married during his life. No, no. But you see, the whole purpose why he came was to win for himself a bride. It's called the church. See, one of the great themes in all of Scripture is this, is that God uses all these kind of relational pictures to describe his relationship with his people, and shepherd, and sheep, and king, and citizen, and father, and children. But most often, the, the, the sign, the symbol, and the relationship that is most often given is the bride and groom relationship, that he is the groom and we are the bride. And Jesus, what he has come to do is to win for himself a bride. This is the motif here, that Jesus is the bridegroom, and he is coming to win for himself a bride. He calls himself the bridegroom in Mark 2 and Matthew 22 and Luke 9, and he tells parables over and over again about wedding feasts. And we see it again, right, in Revelation 19. The end of all things is that God welcomes his bride into heaven and draws her into the wedding feast for all of eternity You see, like many in this room, when you're at a wedding, Jesus is at a wedding, and he, what he has on his mind is his wedding that is to come. But he seems troubled. How will his wedding come about? How is he? How is he going to bring his bride to himself? Well, it's going to cost him a lot. You see, Jesus only says there, what does this wedding have, what does this have to do with me? Saying, this isn't my wedding, but he says, my hour has not come. Now, this is actually hour in the gospel of John is a technical term. And every time that John talks about hour and Jesus mentions his hour, what he is referring to is his death on the cross. An example, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is praying in the garden and he says this in John 13, verse one. He says, now my soul is troubled, for shall I say, say Father, save me from this hour? In John 13, 1, he says, Now the time came for Jesus to depart out of this world. The hour had come. He is always referring in the Gospel of John to his hour. It refers to his death. And so what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is considering and thinking about as he is at this wedding is this. He's saying that in order for my wedding to come, the price that I'm going to have to pay is the cross. That's the price in order to provide wine at my wedding. But you might ask, Why does Jesus have to die? Why is Jesus making the connection between his cross and his future wedding? Well, the clue is in the miracle again. What does Jesus use? What is the one vessel that is used in in turning the water into wine? What does it say? It says six stone jars that were used for the Jewish rite of purification, for cleansing. You see, for centuries and centuries, going back to the Old Testament law, the people of Israel have understood this. And so the Old and New Testaments teach is that we are a sinful people, and we dare not come into God's presence unless we have been washed clean. And therefore, they do these symbolic washings as they would enter into the temple in order not to make other people ceremonially unclean. When they would enter into public gatherings, they would have Jewish uh, purification water there, and they would wash themselves with this water. And the teaching is is this, is that we are sinners, that we we are inadequate, that we are unclean, we are impure. And in particular, we failed God. We have not been faithful to God. And therefore, we desperately need cleansing. Here's the picture we could say in regards to why Jesus has to go to the cross in order to Allow us to come to his wedding, to bring his bride in. Imagine a bride who the groom, months in advance, has sent the bride the wedding dress, a beautiful wedding dress. And what she has done with that wedding dress is she has taken that wedding dress and the gift that the groom has given her. And what she has done is for months and months on in, leading up to the wedding, is she has taken that dress and she has gone out for nights on the town. And she has played the harlot because that's actually what God calls us. And that her dress is now torn and stained. It has wine stains and all sorts of it has been. It smells of cheap cologne and cigarettes. It is gross. It is muddied. And in order for that bride to come in, what must the groom do? She is not appropriately dressed. She has been unfaithful. So I ask you, what must Jesus do in order to bring his bride into his wedding party? He must cleanse her and purify her. That's what the stone jars are there telling us. Do you see what is happening? This wedding has become a living parable. At his last supper, Jesus is going to take a glass of wine, and he's going to lift it up before his disciples. He's going to say this, this cup is, shed, is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Why does he have to go to the cross? What's the, the payment, the, the cost that Jesus is going to pay? He's going to have to cleanse us and wash us. And the means by which he does that is by cleansing us by his own blood. He cleanses us no longer from water, from a ceremonial washing pot, but from the wine that is known as his cleansing blood. You see, because of the uncleanliness of the bride of Christ, we deserve death because of our unfaithfulness. We deserve death. We don't get to drink the wine of abundant life. But instead, what do we deserve? We deserve to drink the wine of what? God's Wrath. And where is the place that we see Jesus most troubled? We looked at this a couple months ago. It is the place in the garden. What does Jesus say in the garden to the Father? Take this cup from me. You see, the reason why the bride is welcome into the wedding party and into the wedding feast. And, because we get to, and the reason why we get to drink the abundant life of Jesus, the wine of his goodness and grace, is because Jesus came and drank the cup of wrath that was deserved for us to wash us clean. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter 5 in the classic text on marriage, it says this and describes marriage this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might what? Sanctify her. And cleanse her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see the glory of Jesus? It says in verse 11, it manifests, this sign, this miracle manifests Jesus' glory. Is the glory just that Jesus can turn water into wine? Is Jesus just one enormous frat guy who you just want to invite to every party? No, that is not the point of this text. The point of this text is this, is that Jesus has come to provide abundant life, and he pays the cost for us. It's the glory of our God that he comes to give us life, and he gives us that life at His the cost of his his own life. What does it say in the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation? How does God describe us? It says there in that hymn, "From heaven He came and sought her, to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died." Let me ask you this: Do you understand the Christian life in that in that view? That Jesus has come to make you His, to make you His bride. That it is not about your adequacy. The groom is inadequate. The bride is inadequate. Everybody in the story about Jesus is inadequate. You're not adequate. This is not about your adequacy. This is not about your own purity. This is about what Jesus does to make you pure. Many, many years ago, I heard a story by a pastor named Matt Chandler. Imagine maybe the most famous story he's ever told, is a story about, it's called The Rose Story. And he gets up and he shares about early on in his Christian life about how he was witnessing to a young woman who he had befriended. And this woman had a jaded past. She had a past full of sin and impurity, and yet she was considering the faith. And he had been sharing his faith with her, and he, so he invites her to this big event at his church where a friend of his is playing for a concert, and there's going to be this speaker who's going to be there to supposedly share the gospel. And so they get done with the worship. Time and the speaker gets up and he's gonna, he's gonna start speaking and he says, I'm gonna talk about sex tonight. Chandler said, Uh oh. And the man held up a rose and he said, Your purity is like a perfect rose. And he says, y- you want to touch it, and you-, you want to smell it, and you want to handle it. And he says, well, let's do this. I'm going to throw in the crowd. And he said, I want everybody, pass this around, row by row. And, and-, and there's about 1,000 people there. And so over the course of the-, the-, the evening, as he's preaching and teaching about sex and the dynamics of it, and the rules about it, and the- this rose gets passed around. At the end, his great crescendo at the end of his sermon is this, as he says, where's my rose? And it's been passed around to a thousand people. And so someone carries up this battered rose that maybe have like one or two petals just barely hanging on for dear life. And he says, who would want this? And Chandler said that he rose with fury because that is not the gospel. The gospel is this that Jesus declares that when someone who is impure and unclean and inadequate and their, their rose is placed up before God and he goes, who would want this? Jesus raises his hand and says, I do. I want it. I will give my life for you. Do you believe that? Or is your Christian life about you being adequate? Do you understand that you are the beloved, that on the day of his wedding... Jesus will look at you and say, you're beautiful and you're radiant. In fact, for all of eternity, he's looked down at you with love, even though you weren't something to behold. And yet he did. He placed his love and affection upon you. You are the beloved. You are welcome into abundant life of joy. And let me ask you this, Christians. Are you experiencing the abundant life now? This is not something just for the future, but even now. Do you have this joy in your life? Do you experience Jesus and his love for you in this way? Many in this room don't experience that. You don't. What keeps us from experiencing this kind of abundant joy in life? Let me tell you two things. Two applications to close. The reason why some of you are not experiencing this abundant joy is because you're drinking too much. And perhaps I might actually mean that literally. Some of you are fools and are drinking too much wine. But I mean more than that. I mean that symbolically. You're drinking the swill of this world. My wife was um, my wife's an entry-level wine sommelier. She got instruction as when she worked at a restaurant when we were in seminary. My wife put me through seminary selling wine. But what I found out, because I didn't know anything about wine when I, we started dating and got engaged, but that, um, that the wine that is most requested, particularly by females, is white Zinfandel. It's really sweet, but it's known as the cheap wine. It's the swill, when there's actually something far greater available to you. You see, so many of you, you're doing this. You're, you're looking to drink the swill of this world, whether it be sex or work or children or money or vacations or quiet time or personal achievement or personal righteous things. And understand this, none of these things will satisfy you. They'll leave you with a headache and leave you dissatisfied and probably feeling sick about yourself. Jeremiah 2.13, the prophet says this, for my people have committed two evils They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Some of you have no joy in Jesus because you have spent all of your time, even as a Christian, looking to just fill up your life with whatever whatever this world can offer you. So we got to reject that, but maybe we need to go the opposite direction. You see, some of you fail to experience the abundant life because you don't drink enough. So many of you think that wine is the party, but Christianity is about drinking from the real thing. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, do not grow drunk on wine, but go drunk on the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, when the grace of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, falls upon the disciples, and they come out and they begin preaching, and their community is so loving and so joyous, everyone around Jerusalem goes, what's wrong with these guys? Are they drunk? They're drunk with joy. Do Christians drink enough? Not the good stuff they don't. And the good stuff that we're talking about here is the wine of Jesus' blood of forgiveness, the drink that we don't drink deeply of the grace of Jesus or drink deeply of the love of God the Father, the wine of God's grace and goodness. And guess what? If we're ever going to be revived and experience this kind of abundant life and joy, we have to reignite our hearts by re experiencing and rediscovering grace. Robert Capone writes this about, about the Reformation. 500 years ago, when men began to recognize the doctrines of grace again, he said this, it was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dust of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself to heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they ever started. That grace cannot be cut. You don't mix it with water. You don't put ginger ale in it. And you don't even put it on the rocks. Grace, you take a neat, straight, just grace. And when you embrace that and you savor that, guess what begins to happen? You get joy. It says the, says the disciples believe. That doesn't mean that they simply had a profession of faith. See, many of you have a profession of faith. It's kind of like reading the label off of a wine bottle. You go, oh, it's, it has a hint of blackberries. I love blackberries, and oh, of of yeah, of of aged dirt. <laughs> that sounds good. And that's that's your experience to Christian life. I profess. Tastes like cocoa and cardamom. No. What do you, if, you, if you're going to experience wine, I love the picture of salvations of wine. In order to enjoy wine, what do you have to do? You have to put it in your mouth and you go... And you swirl around your, in your mouth. It's called savoring. Some of you need to learn to meditate to experience the, the glass of wine that is called the grace of Jesus. And if you're going to savor the love and grace of Jesus, then you're actually going to have to do What? You're going to have to believe it's for you. See, so many of you look at the stories of Jesus time after time after time, and you hear the story I shared from Matt Chandler earlier, and you go, yeah, 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 Jesus loves me, but he has to. No, he loves to. Would Would you allow your heart to be convinced of this and come to believe this, that you are loved deeply and profoundly by your God? most popular show in the last couple years that is, doesn't involve nudity has been the show This Is Us. For many of you watch it, I had to stop watching it because I have enough emotional stuff in my life without having to, <laughs> but in one of the episodes there is a couple, the whole show is about this couple and they're raising their children it's having flashbacks and it combines the children's life when they're older to what happened to them when they were younger and it's a family of they were, all these kids were born on the same day. Two biological kids and one adopted, and two boys, one girl. And the little girl struggles her whole life with being overweight. Her father, is, though, is just taken with her. She's his daughter. He loves her. And so he's, he's constantly telling her every day, You're so beautiful. I love you so much. You're the most gorgeous woman I've ever seen. I just, I just, I love you. I love hugging you. I love kissing you. He just lavishes her with praise. But all through her, her early teen years, she's still struggling with her weight. But when she was, Finally, after years and years of her father lavishing this praise upon her, finally one day in middle school, she said, Stop it, stop. I can't take it anymore. Stop telling me that. You are so intense, she said, on telling me that, and it's so intense about that, that what I hear when you tell me that is you are so fat and so ugly that I'm going to have to tell you over and over again because there is just so much more of you I have to cover up. Dad, when you tell me that over and over again, I'm insulted that you're trying too hard. And when you're telling me that, I'm, I'm beautiful, actually confirms that the opposite is true in my life. Well, this girl is... While struggling with her weight, though, is a fantastic singer, and she has to make an audition tape for a talent show at her school. And so in the midst of singing one day, but she's really nervous to sing in front of a camera, and so one day her father knows this, and so in order to get a videotape of her, he sneaks into her room, just outside of her room, as she's playing in her room her guitar, and she's singing, and it's utterly beautiful. And he sneaks in, and he just kind of cracks the door, and he films her singing this song, but what he doesn't recognize is that behind his daughter is a mirror. So that when he films her, he's also filming himself filming her. And when she discovers that what he has done, that he has filmed her singing and playing music, she is furious with her father. But when later on, when she is alone, when she, see, she takes the videotape, when no one else is in the house and she pops it in the VHS, VHS player, and she begins watching it and she doesn't so much notice her own singing. But what strikes her is this. Is that she sees the reflection of her father looking at her from the mirror. And she begins to realize for the first time how her father actually views her. And she goes to her dad and she hands him the tape and she says, Dad, I don't know. I know I said I don't want you to tell me I'm beautiful anymore. But she can you please don't ever stop. Please don't ever stop because, Dad, I need to learn to see myself in the way that you see me. What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus has come to point out all your inadequacies? Or has Jesus come to look at you with the eyes of affection? And they believed and they saw the glory of Jesus. Man, I hope you'd embrace that truth. Let's pray. Lord, it's so, uh, I don't know how many times I have to be reminded of this. That <laughs> the greatest need of my life, frankly the greatest need my children have, that my wife has, that this church has is for me to savor you. To savor your incredible love to 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 have my heart convinced of what you say about me. To have my heart convinced of what you have done for me. And that when you see me, that you have made me full. That you have covered me with the righteousness and the beauty and the work of Christ Jesus. And then when you look at me, you say, it is well. When you look at me, you say, you are good. When you look at me, you say, oh man, you're handsome. You're beautiful, you're lovely, you are my son. God, I need to be convinced of this. Would you come and convince my heart? My hard hearts? And Lord, where you need to reveal to me or others here of places where we, where we are drinking so heavily and so deeply of the soil of this world that we, we don't run to you, I pray that you would, we would repent of that and that we would long to drink of the fountain of the wine of your forgiveness and grace. Lord, would you do that in this church and would you set us, set us aflame with joy so that maybe Carrollton would go, oh my goodness, out of that church comes a bunch of people who are stark raving mad with grace, drunk on the love of God the Father and they show it in their lives to one another. Would you do that in this place, God? Please. And I need it, I need it most, so do it here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.